Well, I have very much enjoyed this series that we have been in called Forward, where we've been looking at the book of Philippians. And I've enjoyed it so much because I think it's really timely for where we are as a culture. I think it's really timely for where a lot of us are individually. And today we're going to set our sights on Philippians chapter 4. And I feel no differently about this passage. I think it is a right-on-time passage for where we are as a people right now. And so to test that hypothesis, what I want to do is I want to say some statements to you. You don't have to raise your hand, but I just want you to see if any of these statements resonate with you. Maybe in the last week or the last month or the last six months, have you felt any of the following statements? Statement number one, I sometimes find it hard to rejoice when things are not going well. Statement number two, it is easy for me to be anxious about things. Statement number three, I like everything to make sense according to my plan. Some would say I have control issues. Statement number four, sometimes my attitude is not what it should be when my circumstances are bad. And statement number five, I know God can be trusted with everything, but I don't always live like it. Do one or three or all five of those statements resonate with you? You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are nodding your head, so I can only assume that some of us are yes in this category. Thank you for your honesty. For those of you that said no to all five of those statements, please pray for the rest of us for the next 30 minutes, okay? Because the rest of us are struggling. In fact, in all reality, I I think that there is room for all of us to grow, When it comes to moving forward with who Jesus desires for us to be, to be able to rejoice, to be able to not be anxious, to be able to say, I will move forward regardless of my circumstances. And as Paul is going to tell us here in just a little bit, I will learn how to be content in the midst of all of that. So that's where we're going to turn our attention today. And so I hope and pray that you'll open your heart up today and just say, God, what is it that you want to teach me about you through your word? And so before we read his word, let's pray together and ask him again to come and do what only he can do in this place. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day of life. I'm grateful for who you are. I'm thankful for your presence in this place, and I'm so thankful for your word. And I pray that your word today would teach us, that it would encourage us, that it would challenge us. If there's some area of our life that we need to turn over to you today and invite you to be Lord over, I pray that we would have the courage to do that very thing. And it's in the powerful name of Christ that we pray and ask all these things. Amen and amen. The text that I'm going to start with comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. You're going to see these up here on the screen if you don't have a mobile device or a copy of God's Word in your hands today. So starting in verse 1, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. 
I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at the last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Now, the backstory on the book of Philippians, because maybe this is new for you. Maybe you've not had a chance to be here for our series, or you're hearing this uh, text. Maybe it's been a long time or the first time that you have heard it, and there's a few things that are going on. First, the thing that you need to realize is that it's written to a church in a town called Philippi, and the people of Philippi are called Philippians. And so Paul is writing this. He is an apostle. He is writing this to them from prison. And there's some big themes of the book of Philippians, the first of which is unity. Unity is very important in the book of Philippians. Did you catch in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul reminds these folks in the church who are in some disagreement that they can do better. And unity is so important. But it's also humility. Humility is a key phrase that Paul keeps bringing uh, the church back to because there were religious leaders, there were elite people in the city of Philippi who were not humble who are being very arrogant, very conceited. And Paul is saying, you need to follow Jesus' teachings, which means you put other people in front of yourself. And then lastly, the kind of big idea is to stand firm. He wants you to stand firm in your faith no matter what adversity may come. I kind of think that chapter 4 is the the catch-all chapter. It's all of his final exhortations. Has this ever happened to you before where you're in a conversation with someone and you know that you have an hour in the conversation and you had 10 things that you wanted to talk about and 45 minutes into the the conversation, you're only at number five, and you realize I've got 15 minutes left to cover the remainder of this ground. Chapter four is kind of the final, it's the finality. It's the final exhortations. I really want to reiterate these things one more time, is what Paul is saying, so that you really get them. And so he starts in verse one, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord in this way. So he says, therefore, I want you to stand firm. Those of you who are new to Rolling Hills have never heard me say this. Those of you that have been at Rolling Hills have heard me say this maybe at one point in time. Every time you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore? Because the phrase therefore does not stand alone. You can't just start a statement with therefore without knowing what is before it. Go back to chapter 3, verse 15. What does Paul say? All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and at some point you're going to think differently, and God will make that clear to you. What is he saying? He's saying there's going to be differences among you, but I want you to be unified. Therefore, in the midst of all of that, I want you to stand firm. And he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to talk about division and how division is not good. It's something that you should not Uh, that you you should really work uh, very diligently to make sure that the unity is there in the body of Christ and that unity is there in relationships. And then he goes into verses 4 through 7. And verses 4 through 7 are really kind of the meat of chapter 4 because what he's doing is he's saying, if you want to stand firm in your faith, if you really want to move forward with Jesus, he's going to outline for us four specific things that we do. And I want to read verses 4 through 7 again just so you can hear them. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so he gives us these four directives, the first of which is rejoice always. 
He then says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Then he says, don't be anxious about anything. And finally, whatever you might be anxious about, bring that to God in prayer. So rejoice, let your gentleness be evident, don't be anxious about anything, and bring everything to him in prayer. And so I want us to go through these step by step because they're so interesting. First, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, rejoice carries a sense of excitement to it. And this is a word that you see this word a lot in the New Testament, and there's lots of cross-references to this. The one that I find really interesting that I wanted to share with you today is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Some of you guys are like, oh, we're back in Christmas. I'm ready for Christmas. I love Christmas. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I'm thinking actually about putting our Christmas tree up soon. I was like, that's what we need this in this season. Uh, So drive by my house. Somebody's going to put Christmas lights up very soon. But when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Who is this talking about? It's talking about the Magi that are bringing gifts to the newborn king, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That's the exact same Greek word that is here in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice. So the same excitement that the Magi had when they saw the star that led them to the newborn king, that's the same kind of excitement that Paul says I should have when life throws me a curveball. That I should be able to rejoice in all things. Paul is saying in the morning, in the noontime, in the evening time, in seasons of prosperity, in seasons of challenge, I want you to rejoice. And again, I will say, rejoice. You see this there in your notes, but anyone can rejoice some of the time. Anyone can rejoice some of the time. Let's be real. In the last six months, in the last six years, you have had things that you have rejoiced over. In the last day, hopefully you've had some things that you have been able to rejoice over. Anyone can find something to rejoice over. If you can find something to rejoice over, it makes you completely normal, like all other 7, 8 billion people in the world. But to move forward with Christ means that, and to to fully embody what Paul is talking about here, means that I have to be willing to rejoice when the circumstances are not to the up and the right. Paul is saying, I'm telling you to rejoice, and he's sitting in a jail cell, which inherently would not be a place that would be easy to rejoice in. And so he's saying, I want you to find the the, the joy that can be found only in knowing Jesus. So not only does he say to rejoice, but he also says, I want you to let your gentleness, in verse 5, be evident to all. That word gentleness is really better translated as not showing, um, you know, not retaliating against someone who has been unkind to you. We see the word gentleness and we think, oh, that must mean weak or that must mean meek. Really what it means in this, in this context in the Greek is that it means that I'm not retaliating when you have hurt me. How did chapter 4 start? With an argument. It starts with an argument, and he's saying, I want your gentleness to be evident to all. Don't try to seek revenge. Don't try to be like the religious leaders of the day who made it all about them, but rather to be gentle and to be humble and to be meek. 
And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, be anxious for nothing. We're going to camp out here a little bit because this is the one that tends to be maybe the most relevant to where some of us are right now. To be anxious for nothing. In every situation, I want you to give thanks. And through prayer, I want you to present your request back to God. Now, we did an entire series on anxiety back last year. It was called Anxious for Nothing. And so in a few minutes, I cannot sum up an entire six to eight week kind of sermon series that we did. But what I can tell you is that I have noticed that anxiety seems to be at an all-time high right now. It seems to be at an all-time high. In fact, I find the word anxiety coming out, or I hear that word a lot, I should say, in conversations with people, whether it's a pastoral counseling appointment or whether it's just a conversation with a friend. I will hear the words, you know, I'm a lot more anxious than I used to be, or I worry a lot more, or I'm a lot more prone to fear than I used to be. And the reality is what Paul is trying to get us to understand and ultimately what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that we don't have to be held captive by that anxiety. We don't have to be held captive by that worry because what's really at the heart of anxiety and worry is a sense of me trying to be in control. I try to control everything, and I try to mitigate all of the risk that might happen, and I try to create scenarios in my head of what I would do in every potential situation that may arise. And at the heart of worry and anxiety is many times worrying about things that may or may not ever happen. And I allow so much of my thought life to be held captive by that. I have this reoccurring dream sometimes that I show up at a church as a guest, and I get invited up to speak. Now, side note, that did happen to me one time. Praise God, I had had a really good time with the Lord that morning in the Bible, and so I had something to go on. But I think at the heart of that dream is I'm trying to, I guess, create a sense of control that every possible time that I would ever show up, maybe they're going to invite me up to speak, and so i got to have a sermon in my back pocket ready to go. And it, it's a silly illustration, but I think it embodies what anxiety does because anxiety throws us into a place where we think we have to control everything. And we think we have to have a plan for everything. And there's an internal struggle that's going on for us to hold it together. But ultimately, you know this as well as I do. We're incapable of controlling things, aren't we? We can't control the things that happen to us. And what Paul is saying is, I don't want you to be held captive by that. But in every situation, every situation, I want you to bring those requests to God. And then he doesn't just stop there. He says, not only do I want you to bring these requests to God, but he said, and be thankful. What? In all situations, I'm supposed to be thankful? I'm supposed to be thankful for the adversity that came in my life. I'm supposed to be thankful for this, you know, terrible circumstance. Absolutely. Because when we're not thankful, anxiety tends to go, uh, tends to elevate in our lives. In fact, you see it there in your notes. Anxiety loses power in the presence of gratitude. Anxiety loses power in the presence of gratitude. Now, I did not say that anxiety disappears, <laughs> in the presence of gratitude. I'm not going to stand before you and say, I can figure out some solution in your life, A plus B equals C, that all the anxiety and the worry and the fear is going to go away. I don't think they're ever going to go away because they're natural responses that we have. But they don't have to control us. And gratitude, or a lack thereof, I should say, 
will always increase anxiety in my life. Anxiety loses power in the presence of gratitude. I kind of liken anxiety to a bonfire, and I liken a lack of gratitude to the guy who brings a gallon of gasoline and pours it on the fire, and it just explodes. And that's, in fact, what a lack of gratitude tends to do to anxiety in our life. And so if we want to pick this apart and try to make some traction in the right direction, I hope and pray that we'll look around and say, you know what, I have so much to be grateful for. This season that we um, are still in, this COVID-19 season, um, has been very challenging, very, very challenging. I know some of you uh, went three to four months without a paycheck in this season. I know that some of you, um, or maybe someone you know, lost their job in this season. I think about what happened here in the life of our church, and we ceased in-person worship gatherings for three months. We had had a grand opening celebration two weeks before we had our last Sunday here. Do you guys, some of you were here for that. Remember we shot confetti cannons, and it was awesome, and we were just so excited about the next, this next year, and then we said, no, we've actually got to stop meeting for months, and then we've been back with some semblance of meeting for about three months now, and I'm going to be brutally honest with you guys. Has there been really hard parts about this season? Absolutely. Do I know all that is to come? Do I know what the future of ministry looks like? Do I know what the future of the church looks like? How is student ministry going to look different? How does kids' ministry look different? How does education look different in all these days moving forward? You could insert your own job, your own calling, your own things into those categories and say, how does all of that look for you? And the reality is we probably cannot answer all of those questions. But can I share something with you guys? This past six months has been hard. But you know what? I am so thankful for it. I am so thankful for it. Has this been a tough season? Absolutely. Has this season also been a gift? Yeah. Because what has happened in this season, I think that there's some things that God gave us a hard reset on this season so that we could reevaluate in order to keep the main central mission central. I think there was some things that we probably would have never stopped doing. Maybe there's some things that you would have never kind of stopped doing in your own life if God had not given you a hard reset. Maybe we would have missed it. And he said, no, I want you to lean into this. I think about my family and I think about my wife and my kids and spending time with my wife and my kids is absolutely my favorite way, my favorite use of time. If I have any ounce of time that's left, that's what I want to do. I want to spend time with them. Over the past six months, we had more time at home than we had the past six years. So I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for that. That's a season that may never be replicated again. And so instead of bemoaning how hard it was, which it was. I want to say, you know what? I am grateful for it because what have I, I've come to realize this and hopefully you have as well. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be grateful for them. It's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying we wait for this moment of perfection so that we can be grateful. 
No, we need to be grateful in the highs and the lows. We need to be grateful in the ups and the downs. And when we start from a place of gratitude, God tends to say, you know what? That anxiety and that fear and that worry, they begin to lose some of their influence in your life. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. I could make an argument that the most significant word in chapter 4 is the first word of verse 7, and. Because it's this conditional clause. He says, don't be anxious. Bring everything to God in prayer and petition. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't want that peace? Who doesn't want that peace in their life right now that transcends all human understanding? What does Paul say needs to happen in your life for that to happen? Then you've got to let the anxiety and the worry go, and you've got to surrender all that back to him with gratitude in thanksgiving and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. You see it there in your notes, but peace picks up where my understanding falls short. Praise God for that. His peace picks up where my understanding falls short. In Paul's specific situation, I think about his, his situation. He is in a prison cell right now. I'm going to probably have some questions if I'm him. I'm going to have limited understanding as to why am I here. God, what are you trying to accomplish in the midst of this challenge? And he says that it's the peace of God that transcends my understanding. See, it's through Jesus Christ and through fellowship with him that his peace comes where my understanding is so limited. Maybe you're going through a situation right now, and again, don't raise your hand. But are you going through a situation right now where you have more questions than you have answers? where the knowledge that you have is so limited in knowing what to do. If that is you, I want you to memorize verse 7 because the peace of God which transcends, which goes beyond all human understanding, it is available to you. But it's also condition. It has a condition that I have to allow that anxiety to go away and I have to bring those requests to him and I have to trust him and be thankful in the midst of all of it. See, I want to know Jesus that way. And I want to be in that kind of relationship with Jesus. And part of my role and my calling as a pastor is to try to help you to do that as well and to try to equip you to do that. This past week, I was thinking about this passage and in this text, and I was thinking about the, you know, just the specific things um, and how, you know, we can make traction in this area. And I was kind of at an impasse, and I thought, you know, I just need to talk to a couple people about how do you do this. And so there were a couple people that came to my mind here in the life of our church, and I decided to just give them a call and ask them. And um, one of the people that I called um, is a dear, uh, dear, dear um, person in the life here of our church. Her name is Tony Crosby. And Tony and Dan Crosby are just two of the finest people that you will ever meet. And uh, some of you have not had the privilege of knowing them, and I can't wait till you get a chance to meet them. And they are so special and so sweet and so kind. And, um, and they really embody <laughs> this Philippians 4 mindset. Um, I know enough about their story to know that they've had a number of things in their life that 
could have really caused a lot of anxiety and could have really caused a lot of stress and could have really um, made them um, question, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And so I was on the phone uh, specifically with Miss Tony, and I said, Miss Tony, you seem to really embody this, and I'm just curious how. What do you do? What advice would you give to someone that seeks to live this way? And without missing a beat, she said, God's word. And I said, would you like to expand on that? <laughs> she said, God's word. I said, again, would you, I, mean, I want to quote you in the sermon. So is there anything else you know you, she said, you've got to be committed to God's word. She said, it is the single most determining factor in our lives that has helped us navigate the highs and the lows. It is God's word. She said, I read God's word every day, many times, multiple times a day, and I've done that for decades. Now, I'm not going to tell you the amount of decades that she said, because that would give away her age, and I know better than that. But I will say this. She's been reading God's word faithfully for more years than I've been alive. And she continued by saying, he keeps his word. She said, I change nothing. He changes everything. And then she said, Jason, are you familiar with the verse about that his word is alive and it's active? And I said, yes, Miss Tony, I'm familiar with that verse. And she said, well, do you know how I know that his word is alive and how I know that it's active? She said, he brings me something every day that is perfectly fitting for every situation that I find myself in. That's how I know it's alive. And I hung up the phone and I thought, well, that was good. And I 100% concur with her. I don't think there is a single thing that you and I can do right now that will position us more to be this type of Christ follower, this type of person who moves forward with Jesus than a commitment to reading his word. And then I started hitting rewind in my mind, and I realized that many of the folks that I have been in conversation with, especially over the past six months, that life has just been so hard, and it's been so tough, and the anxiety has just been so overwhelming. When I would begin to ask them, and I've started asking this question more and more, have you been reading God's Word? You know one of the answers that I most frequently get? No. No. I haven't been. And in the most loving, pastoral way that I know how to say this, if a commitment to God's word doesn't come into your life, then you shouldn't expect the next year to be any different because you meet in there. It is alive and it is active. What you bring into your life, what you allow for space in your life, it's going to determine how you act. It's going to determine your response. How can I be a man like Paul who says, no matter what might come my way, I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to rejoice in the midst of it all. How can I do that? I've got to know him, and I've got to allow those things to be into my life, bring them into my life, and allow them to determine then how I'm going to respond and how I'm going to act. This is a conscious choice. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, 
whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned from me or received from me or seen me put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Ding, ding, ding. What is Paul saying? He's saying the way that you think shapes the way that you act. The way that you think shapes the way that you act. In another one of Paul's letters to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, he gives them a very similar refrain where he says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. I would be the first to say that on many occasions in my life, the battle has been won or lost in my mind. Because sometimes my mind has made a much bigger deal of something than it really was, And the inverse has also happened. Sometimes in my mind, something has been downplayed that is much more significant. And it's why those thoughts have to be taken captive. And it's why our mind has to be set on him. And it's why our mind has to be thinking about the lovely things, the admirable things, the worthy things. And the peace of God will come in the midst of that. The peace of God is a promise. The God of peace will be with you when our minds and when our hearts are set on him. I think about the 24-7 access that we have to everything these days. 24-7 access to news, 24-7 access to social media, 24-7 unfettered access to email. All of these things are at my fingertips, morning, noon, night, daylight, dark. It is all right there. I'm not advocating that you stop doing those things. I'm not going to sit up here and say, you know, you need to take Instagram off your phone. I I post on stuff on Instagram all the time. So I'm not going to tell you not to do that. The problem, though, is all of those things are kind of like sponges, and they will soak up all of the space in our life that is not committed to something more valuable or more admirable or more worthy of our thoughts. That's why I've made a spiritual practice, and I call it a spiritual practice, and it was told to me by one of my mentors a number of years ago, to not look at email, to not look at social media, to not look at the news in the morning until I've had a time to pray, and hopefully a time to just concentrate on his word, even if just for a little bit, before I dive into those things. I was thinking about, is that really a good practice, and And I realized, you know, to put it in terms that a lot of us understand, I know of no good orchestra that warms up halfway through their performance. Does anyone know any any good orchestras that an hour into their performance, the conductor hits the baton and says, okay, now let's get all the instruments tuned? (laughs) No, you're tuning before. I I I know no sports team that plays 20 minutes, and the coach calls them in and says, okay, practice. Let's make sure that we know these plays, guys. Now, you're going to make sure that that is set apart prior to ever stepping onto the field. And when it comes to our life, I encourage you to get your mind set on him first because that really helps shape the way that I'm ultimately going to act. Now, what difference does all of this make? What is the big difference maker in all of this? Let's see the difference that it made for Paul. Look at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. That at last you renewed your concern for me. And indeed you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. See, Paul is saying, I've learned the secret to being content. And what is that secret? I can do it all through him. You see it there on your notes. The key to contentment is not I, but rather through him. The key to contentment is not I, but rather through him. See, Philippians 4.13 is not just some catchy statement that we say when we need a little extra boost. Because when we hear Philippians 4.13, what do we tend to focus on? The I part. I can do all things, but the most important word in there is through him. You've heard the old adage, there's no I in team. Well, there's also no I in contentment. It's really not about me. It's rather through him. It's rather through him. And Paul closes this chapter by thanking the Philippians for their support. And he says, I'm going to express that gratitude right back to you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for giving. Thank you for caring for me. And then ultimately, one of his final refrains is in verse 19. And he says, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And I want to end this sermon series today by asking you that same question. Do you truly believe that every need that you have in your life can be met by Jesus? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? In fact, I want you to hang out there for just a second. I want you to reflect up on that. The band's going to come up. They're going to close us here with a song in just a moment. But I want you to reflect up on that truth. Do you truly believe that every need in your life can be met by Jesus? Because if I believe that every need in my life can really be met by Jesus, then it will radically, radically affect the way that I live. If I believe that every need in my life can be met by Jesus, then in essence what I'm saying is no matter how great the needs are, no matter how great my needs are, God, I know that you can trust them. And I hope and pray that that can be said about me. I hope and pray that it can be said about you. That we would say, you know what? No matter what may come, I have learned the secret. I have learned what it means to be content. And what it means to be content is to be a person who will rejoice always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. We'll be a person who will let our gentleness be known and let our gentleness be evident. A person who will not be anxious for anything, but in everything through prayer and petition will make those requests known to God with thankfulness. And then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. See, if we can live that way, then we can get a promotion and be thankful for it. If we live that way, then we can be looked over for promotion and also be thankful for it. If I live this way, I can get a new car and be thankful for it. If I live this way, my car can break down on the side of the road. 
and I can be thankful for it. The highs, the lows, the in-betweens, everything, I can be thankful for it. I desire for that to be said about me. And if you desire for that to be said about you, then I believe it starts right now. It starts right now in this moment saying, God, whatever may come our way, we will praise you. We will raise a hallelujah to you. We will raise our voices to you. We will raise our banner and our banner of Jesus Christ and say, whatever may come in this world, Jesus, you are good. You are good. You are so good. And so let's stand today and sing like we mean it. Let's sing today and praise and raise our voices to him and say, God, whatever may come, we will be content in you. Praise God.